So we're starting much later than I thought. Um, we'll open with uh, Psalm 138 this morning. Psalm, Psalm 138. It's the Psalm of David. Of course, a lot of Psalms are. I give you thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. I will sing you praises before the gods. I bow before your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness. For your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. As soon as I pray, you answer me. You encourage me by giving me strength. Every king in all the earth will thank you, Lord. For all of them will hear your words. Yes, they will sing about the Lord's ways. For the glory of the Lord is very great. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Though I am surrounded by troubles, you will protect me from the anger of my enemies. You reach out your hand, and the power of your right hand saves me. The Lord will work out his plans for my life, for your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Don't abandon me. You made me. For you made me. Amen. The version was that. That's nice. I, uh, I, you know, there are several key verses in there that jump off the page for me. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. That's first verse three. So, Lord is always listening. He's always present, um, and He's there in spirit. When we reach out to Him, He strengthens us. And you know, it's it's His right hand that will save me. So we need to understand what is His right hand. What is what is the Lord's right hand that will save us? Pardon? Yeah. Because we know that he has been seated at the right hand of God. How do we know that? Because <laughs> the Bible tells us so, right? We have God's revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that uh, the Son of Man has come for our salvation, and he died for our sins. On the third day, just as the scripture said, and it was witnessed by many, and the, the witness of that was that he was buried, and the Roman guards would not bury a live man, i tell you that, so Jesus really died, but it wasn't a pointless death, and it wasn't a death that was brought about um, by humanity, right? So Jesus said, no man can take my life, but I willingly lay it down, so he died for our sins. And that he was then raised on the third day, according to the scripture, and then was seen by a whole lot of witnesses. And that's, uh, that's the gospel, and that's what we're looking at this morning, is the gospel message in Ephesians. Um, so what's Ephesians about? Oh, I'm new, do, do something new. Okay. The same old block where the one. About five one. Okay. Therefore, be imitators of God. You know what? That's kind of saying what four one says. It is. In a little different way. And in fact, that's that's really appropriate for what we're what we're going to look at this morning. So, of course, I would pick out four one, and the reason I always pick out four one is because that's kind of the transition um, from the theological core of understanding our identity in Christ and what that means to be in Christ, to how that should affect our life. But being imitators of Christ is, is really how we walk that out. So if we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, um, how do you do that? How do you walk in a manner worthy? Well, you imitate Christ. So that's very good. That's a... I might actually change my uh, change my my verse there. So as we were talking about, um, a, a lot is said about salvation in Ephesians, and um, I use this slide. This is one of the slides I present as part of basic Bible doctrine. So when I teach theology core, um, and we look at the different categories of theology, one of them is soteriology, uh, the study of salvation. And I always bring up this slide because there's a lot that happens in salvation that we need to be aware of, what God is doing on our behalf. And then what is the, the uh, obligation 
that is a result of God's work on our behalf. Because there is an obligation that's created by revelation. So that's that's an important thing to understand. That's step four or five. Correct. Well, I would I would say as I've got it listed here. No, I'm talking about your, your four or five steps. Oh, okay. That would be the last the last step. Right. So when I went through uh, evangelism 101 last week, I said you have to start uh, that there is a God. Right. So if if someone is struggling with the concept of whether this is just a great cosmic accident or whether there is in fact a, a creator, you start with that there is a creator. And there are implications according to that assumption. So we do presuppose certain things, but that presupposition is not without merit. And that what we read in Romans is that God has made himself evident such that none can deny him. So when I read through uh, Romans chapter 1, I get to to verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the truth is truth. And you can deny that it's true, but your denial or your suppression does not make it untrue. So that which is true is true. And and the evidence of that is uh, we have certain um, causes and effects or what we would call natural laws. Right, so I always like to use gravity as a natural law. Um, you cannot, regardless of what you might believe, you cannot imagine yourself outside of the effect of gravity or the consequence of gravity in your life because it's a natural law. The same thing is true about life and death. The same thing is true about the nature of reality as revealed by God about who He is and what is according to his declaration. So we can suppress it uh, in unrighteousness. And it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So you start with a presupposition, and that is that God exists. We can suppress that truth, but nonetheless, it's true. And then... We read on in Romans, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So that statement in Romans has to do with what we call in theology general revelation. In fact, you actually see it up here, that the revelation of the Spirit is both general and specific. And the specific understanding is what we're studying today. The, the revelation of God through the prophetic uh, utterance, through God revealing himself to humanity through the prophetic voice. And that that prophetic voice can take a number of different ways. It can take a form of vision. So God can appear to people even when there is no prophet in the land. He does that, and we hear stories of that today, where people in a Muslim country that is 100% Muslim, right? Christianity is illegal, um, any kind of proselytization or evangelism or, or proselytizing is, is uh, a cause for being either ejected from the country or, or killed, depending if you're a, a native of that country, right? So we understand that God reveals himself yeah, specifically, and he does that through the prophetic utterance, and that that can occur individually in the heart, or it can occur through the prophet, which we have recorded. Right, so as men spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, that was captured for our benefit, that we could have this this special revelation, and that um, so that's that's a presupposition one. So I know I get on the rabbit trail, and then it's like, well, the uh, number number one point number one is that it's not the way it's supposed to be, right? What we see is brokenness, and I don't know anybody that denies. Uh, brokenness. So when you study um, the different categories of philosophy, you come to a, a category called the problem of evil. And how do you explain evil? Right? We have an under we have an inherent um, understanding in our heart that things are supposed to be good and right, and we find that they're not good, they're not right. That evil is the course of the day. 
right? So things are not as they're supposed to be, and that there's a consequence of that, and the consequence of that is that we're separated from good. In fact, we're separated from good for all eternity. And what we understand is, is you're separated from good and you're separated from the source of life, that that is eternal death. And that's just, you know, that's just pure logic. You can figure that out. And so some people deal with that fact by embracing annihilism. Uh, and, and, and what happens is, is that they're annihilated when they die. So their last breath and the last conscious light that they have going through their brain, after that, they're gone. Well, that leads to a place of hopelessness and despair because that means that there is no point to anything that you do. And Paul said when he was declaring the gospel, he said, you know, if that's true, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so there's a whole lifestyle Amen. around eat, drink, and be merry, right? It says that. Yeah. But, um, okay, so sorry. Let me, let me try and summarize it. you got sure. four points. Yep. Okay, and the first one is there's a God and it's mm-hmm. not me. Mm-hmm. The second one is things are messed up. There is sin, which brings death. Yep. Which separates us from him. Yep. And the third one, I think, is there's good news, and that is Christ came and conquered death and sin. Yep, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How did he conquer death and sin? But go ahead. The The fourth one is the one that Mitch was alluding to. There is an obligation as a result of this revelation. Just as we read about in Romans chapter 1, and I said there is a general revelation. Well, guess what? Paul goes on to say there's also a specific revelation, and that revelation is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. He perfectly reveals who God the Father is. So, as a result of Christ's coming, we were already condemned. Christ came to save us. But nonetheless, it creates an obligation on the part of man that cannot be denied. You have to choose. Right? You can choose yourself and deny, you can suppress the truth to the point of entering into eternity separated from God. Or you can embrace the truth. Right? And that's what we're going to read about this morning. And that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. How you embrace the truth. And what is that truth? That truth is that God loves us so much that he graciously, in his grace, he acted on our behalf to rescue us and to save us. And, and there are lots of aspects of that. So as we were uh, following through the course of Ephesians, and I'm going to read through, in fact, I'll just read through the first part here. From verses uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, this is the, the theological core of which everything that Paul's going to write about is wrapped around says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So the first thing that we need to understand is this is all about God blessing us. Right? And that he doesn't just bless us with, like, Christmas is coming up, with Santa Claus coming and getting your Lexus if you pay attention to the TV. Right? Oh, yeah. I'd love that Santa Claus bring me a Lexus. That would be great. But that's, that's not a blessing. Anybody that's had to pay the insurance and the maintenance, and, you know, and, and get in that ding, you know, you got that perfect vehicle, and all of a sudden, ah, you know, and, oh man, right? That's not a blessing. It's like you know, those things, the free goldfish, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, the free goldfish. So, but what God desires to bless us with is the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. So Paul makes an incredible statement there. He says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. To be holy and blameless before him means that we can have communion and relationship with him. He says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. He's talking about having a relationship, actually being um, brought into the family when we were uh, kicked out of the family by our own leaving, right? And that's what we're going to read this morning is Luke chapter 15 to help us understand the nature of grace. It was 
our own choice that led us away from God. We basically said, God, you are dead to me. And we made ourselves the, the, the king. We made ourselves the owner of goodness and the declarator of what that is. That's what happened. But he, the work that he did when we were separated from him was to bring us back into relationship with him. And that was in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So these, this grace that we're reading about, God poured out in superabundance. He lavished it on us. You know, I think of sometimes that lavishing can be just almost too sweet. And in fact, those that have experienced a, a real hard press of the Spirit, they get to the point of saying, God, it's too much. I can't stand in your presence any further. And they fall on their face and cover their head. Right? That we read about that in the Scripture, about those that have been in the presence of God, um, whether it, he was, God was just bringing them in uh, by hiding himself to a degree, like we read about in, in Moses and in Elijah and in uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel. I mean, these are people that had an experience with God, and it was so overwhelming. It's like, whoa, is me. I am a man of unclean lips, right? It can be that can be so sweet that it's overcome. It, it can overcome you. I think of the carrot cake we had at the Christmas jazz. And that was one of the best carrot cakes I've ever had. But the frosting was overwhelming. <laughs> you know? Sometimes it's, it's so sweet that we just have to say, okay, I, I as a human being, can only take so much. Um, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ things in the heavens and things on the earth. So what God intends in his kindness is to show us the king, the true king, the king in heaven and ultimately the king on earth, that we don't reign, he reigns, right? That we were created with a delegated authority to the true king, that he is the true king. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So this is talking about our future, our destiny. This is what gives us hope. Now I, I spoke about those who will suppress the truth and they'll embrace an annihilationism. They have no hope. We have a hope because we have an inheritance. And, and the inheritance is not the location, it's the person that we are in Christ, right? In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So that's the theological core that Paul wraps this whole letter around, right? So that's why I'm going to read it to you every week. Even though it takes a bit of time to go through that, that's something that you need to, to commit to um, your memory. You know, if you're going to memorize scripture, this is a really good passage to memorize because you can stand firm on this, right? It's about being blessed and chosen by God to live blamelessly before Him, it's about being chosen for adoption and forgiveness through grace. And it's God's plan for eternity revealed and his spirit given as a guarantee. That's incredibly powerful. So you're memorizing, that's what you memorize. We also then uh, went through Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. And the, the reason I point this out is because his prayer is that we will have a revelation, that we will know the truth, and that there's three parts of that. Knowing the hope of his calling knowing the riches of his glorious inheritance, and knowing his incomparably great power, because where we stand, we are powerless. But in him, we read in the psalm this morning, when I call out to him, when I draw near to him, he 
energizes my soul. Let me read that to you one more time. It says in verse 3 of Psalm 138, which we read, On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. That's what God is doing, right? So we need to understand that because we're going to need to stand. That's the point. So last week I introduced the the summary of um, the salvation theology of Paul. And I'm going to read it again and we're going to drill down on grace, faith, and works. Grace, faith, and works. Those are the three things we're, we're talking about, right? So as I read through this, I want you to to pull out grace, faith, and works. And we're going to pull those out each one at a time. And you were dead, I'm reading in chapter 2, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So last week, we started looking at grace. And I asked you, what's the definition of grace? And I know uh, Mitch gave me an answer. Does anybody remember what that answer was? What is grace? Getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. Unmerited favor. Right? God really wants us to understand what grace is. Paul here repeats twice, by grace you have been saved. He says that in verse 5, and he says it again in verse 8. When he repeats it in close proximity, in the core of the evangelical message, the gospel, right? Um, when, When he repeats something like that, that is really important. By grace you have been saved. Let's take a look at an example of the grace of God in Luke this morning in chapter 15. So if you go to Luke chapter 15, um, this is part of uh, parables of uh, Jesus. He gave several parables. And this is in, uh, if you follow through uh, the the parables here, um, he encourages those who um, follow after him to release the world and embrace him, right? That's what discipleship truly means. So a disciple in that day was one who um, lived with their teacher, who ate with their teacher, who walked with their teacher, who watched everything in the life, imitation of Christ, of their teacher, such that they could not just um, not just have a mental assent to the truth, but actually an experience of the truth through communion. And that's when we get to talking about faith, we want to understand what faith is. Right here, he wants us to understand something about what he has done for us, the grace of God. So when we get to chapter 15, he gives three parables. He gives um, a parable of uh, lost sheep. So um, the the preface to this is he's sitting at uh, dinner with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling, saying, look at this guy. He even eats with them. 
And so he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, (coughs) Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So the first uh, picture of grace that he gives is when one is lost, a sheep, even you, shepherds, would go looking for him, right? Even the evil among us try and do good. And he gives this example of, and he says that, even you. What man among you? And then he gives a, a, a parable of a lost coin. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it's repetitive, but a different picture. We have sheep, we have coins. Now he wants us to really, truly understand what this means to us. I mean, I can understand if I, uh, if I lost a coin, how I would go searching for it. Because Karen and I went looking for her watch last night. We're sitting there getting ready for bed. And she said, you know, I set my watch aside quite a while ago. I can't even remember when I did it, but I haven't seen it. What happened to my watch? So what did we do? We turned the house upside down looking for her watch. And sure enough, we found it. She said, found it! Rejoice, right? That's a watch. What about a person? What is your value? So we place value on things. We place value on a sheep. We place value on a coin. What about the value that God has placed on us? So he gives this parable, which is so incredible. When I read it, it always brings tears to my... So if I cry, forgive me. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Stop right there for a moment. In this culture that this is written, when he says, give me the share of your inheritance that is mine, he is declaring his father dead. He is, um, it is a form of rebellion that is the highest form. It is using his father's name in vain. He is devaluing him his fathers of all value and actually declaring him dead. So when we saw the philosophical movement that happened in the 60s and the result of that in the 70s, 80s, 90s and first decade of uh, this century, they said God is dead. When that's, that's an incredible declaration and people from the time of Adam forward have done that. They've said Give me my inheritance because you are no longer of value and alive. So that's what he's saying. So incredible, incredible statement of this son. And he says, after not many days later, the young man gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So the guy made himself a, a slave, and, um, and, and whether that slave owner is a Jew or a Gentile is not indicated. In fact, the, the religious affiliation or nationality of the father and the son are not known. He's just speaking into the culture, and he would have been speaking to a Jewish nation, and they would have understood this that probably um, in the, the destitution that this young man went through, he became a slave to a Gentile um, landowner, a Gentile master. Now a slave, uh, a Jewish slave to a Gentile is an, a terrible <coughs> thing in itself. But then, as a result of being become a slave, the guy says, now go out and feed my, my pigs, which is like... I'm no longer a Jew. I have lost my identity. If I'm going to go and live and feed the pigs, I'm no longer a Jew. 
not only did he lose his inheritance and, and squandered um, the material wealth, he lost the spiritual wealth. He lost his identity. And it says, so he, um, he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into the field to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. It's a pretty terrible place. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? He had a revelation. He came to his senses. Right? In other words, he remembered that which his father had spoken to him about who he was. That his father was a generous man. That he was a merciful man. That he was good to his slaves. Right? He says, you know, my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but here I am dying. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That's what repentance is. Right? And it uses the word repentance here. Um, He's turning from that which he has embraced in the world to that which he knows to be true about his father. And he desires to acknowledge in the, in, the, in the presence of his father that truth. His father knows this too, right? His father heard him say, you're dead to me. His father, I'm sure, heard about what was going on with this young man because father cares, right? How many of us have had children that have gone wayward um, and in the course of their waywardness, we hear rumors. I know when I was, I was uh, quite a nefarious character at one point in time, and uh, so I was this prodigal. This was me. And in the course of uh, me going out and living among the pigs, my aunt, my uncle, my grandmother, my mother um, were praying for me, Right? They were praying that God would deliver me from that. Now, they, by God's grace, did not know all the details of how far down I went. But they never stopped praying. And I actually heard that many years later after I'd come back. um, And my uncle shared with me, he said, you know, we were praying for you at this point in time. And 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 it particularly touched me because I knew that God cares. That's what he's saying here. God cares. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So this culture, remember, is a culture that is very um, steeped in tradition. We know that from Fiddler on the Roof, right? And that the tradition of how the, the land ownership was ceded to the, to the children was important. In fact, we just went through that in our study in Leviticus, that the land didn't actually belong to the people. It belonged to God. And that God had provided that as part of his provision or his giving out part of his inheritance to the people. See, God owns it all. But he gave it to those that he had chosen such that they could reap the the benefit of that, that they could be blessed by produce. And what would happen is, is that just to help people understand, no, 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 this is about God. This is about what he's doing. This is about how um, he has chosen you and he has a place for you. Every 50 years, they would reset the or every 49 years, they would reset the, uh, the books. Everything became equal. They'd have jubilee, right? That was every seven sevens, they would, that which God had provided, it was recognized that that was God's provision and there was no longer a debt. And the people would go back to their land. They, they would be freed. The captives are set free, right? So we see in the pattern of jubilee, which was uh, a declaration of, of God's 
providence and, pro- and provision for his people, a, fo- a foretelling of that which God intended in Christ. He would set the captives free. We even see Isaiah declaring that. Right? Isaiah understood it because God gave him that special revelation. We understand it. The captive is set free. And that was a really big deal. That whole thing about inheritance and the uh, how that identity as uh, a member of one of the tribes, one of the sons of Jacob, made you an inheritor of the promise of God. So the promise of God in inheritance was extremely important to these people. The next thing that was important to these people was because God had valued them in that way, they had a certain stature. Right? They had a place in God. And that place could become a place of pride. It could be a place of, rather than just understanding that, wow, God has loved me so much and valued me so much that he has made this provision for me. And not only is it a present provision, but it's a future provision as well. Rather than that, it could become a place of pride. And a a landowner, one who had a lot, could say, this is mine. And when they would go out in public, they wore their robe. Right? That was a robe of honor. And they walked. They didn't run. That's not what they did. And what does it say here? As he's coming to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Right? He's taking from that which is his, he ran. He, he showed the extent of his grace for this son. The son truly repented, but the father, before he even repented, ran and pulled out the best robe. And he said, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life. Again, he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. That is a picture of God's grace. That is what he is doing. He is running. He is kissing. He is roping. He is ringing. He is shooing. Right? He is pouring out every ounce of his love to the one who declared him dead and squandered that life that had been given to him. And he restores him. That's what salvation is. It's the grace of God. Now, not everybody gets this, right? So we read, Now the older son was in the field. When he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring, what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him, and safe and sound. Because, But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours... Came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Father said to the son, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. So this is the same parable of the talents, where a hired man comes to work, he hears the message of a call, and he comes, some come in the morning, some come midday, some come at the last hour, yet they all receive the same. Grace is not fair. That's really hard to wrestle with, because we have this sense of justice, which says, our justice says um, it's all about distribution, 
distributive justice. Our legal system is all about getting your share, right? God's justice is about restoration. And we understand that. And that's what is being said here. For by grace you have been saved. That's an incredible statement. When we understand that we are that prodigal, and it is the character of God to love us, to lavish upon us His unmerited favor, and to not just restore us and say, "Well, I guess you can come in and you know feed the pigs," although they didn't have pigs, they didn't come in and feed the chickens. Um, rather, He places us with Him in the heavenlies. That's what Paul said, right? When we read this, uh, this statement here, we are with him in the heavenlies. In him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, to, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. We understand that we are in him and that we are and what that means is we are where he is. And as I read through that whole of uh, the summing up of all things in Christ and that um, he has an inheritance, his inheritance is eternal life. The proof of that is that he was raised from the dead, right? Never to die again. We are in him. So his life is our life. And we're told to identify with him in that um, his death is our death. Just as the, the cause and effect, the, 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 uh, the sin results in death, eternal separation, right? So things aren't as they're supposed to be. That's what he says, things aren't as they're supposed to be. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The result of that is eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus was talking about when he told the story of the prodigal son. It's not fair, it makes no sense, but nonetheless, it's who God is. He chooses us to bless us in this way. And then he goes on to say, for by grace you have been saved, get that first, through faith. What does that mean, through faith? From your experience as a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a, a Methodist or uh, Catholic, whatever religious tradition you come from, what does that mean? By grace you have been saved through faith. They accepted God's grace. What does it mean to accept God's grace? To stop rejecting it. Pardon? To stop rejecting it. Stop rejecting it? So some would say it's a mental assent to the truth. That we, we uh, decide to, um, that that's true that it's a, an act of uh, the mind and the will where we assent to the truth about what God is doing and it might involve um, a, a formulaic prayer, right? So we have taken this idea of through faith and uh, rationalized it in a way that it's a very cerebral activity. Um, so we're trying to um, build nice little categories so I can figure out, okay, what does it mean that I have faith? What Paul is talking about here is it has to do with uh, union with Christ. It has to do with um, this idea of being in him means that um, our faith actually causes us to imitate him. We are joined with him. Just like we, in our baptism, we talk about that we are joined with Christ in his death, and we go down, 
and we are raised with him in life. So he's talking about the union. He's talking about relationship. He's talking about um, a way of being in Christ that affects the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we walk, the way everything about us. Right? We are a new creature, a new creation. And I was thinking about this. And I was thinking, okay, what is an example of faith? Um, I, I, uh, I'm a supervisor at work, and so I have employees. Right? And my, my uh, job is to pour my life out for my people. That's what I've been hired to do. That means I'm paying attention to their welfare. Sure enough, I have to get the job done at the end of the day. But ultimately, my goal is to build up each of those people such that they can reach their maximum potential. That they can be all that they were designed to be. And I do that at my own expense. I pour myself out for these people. I believe in them. My wife believes in me. So I get up here every week, or almost, and I... I try my best to accurately um, reveal the word of God to you, right? I believe in expository preaching. I'm not preaching, although it probably sounds like a sermon. But um, I, what I do, and at the end of that, I always feel empty. And I always feel worthless. And I always feel like I've failed. And if Karen was here, she'd be nodding her head. Because I walk out of here and I say, okay, how bad did I suck? Because the part of me that is not looking like the Father running and losing everything for the salvation of my son, there is a part of me that still holds on to, okay, I have value and that value is me, not God. Right? So I'm, I'm admitting part of my failure. And, and I know that that's there. I know that it's in me. And I combat against that. I pray. I fall on my face. I say, Lord, um, that's not who I want to be in you. I want to be as you are. I want to imitate Christ. And Karen believes in me. She believes that I'm more than my failure. And she will tell me that every week, whether I ask it or not. Because she believes in me. She's in union with me. She desires my blessing. I desire her blessing. Today is her birthday. So when you see her, say happy birthday. And you guys did say happy birthday. Um, my desire for her is that she would be blessed. I believe in her. So as she comes out of her job and she says, man, I suck. I can't do these uh, SQL queries right and you know, I've been here for 15 years and these people are whiz kids at these report services and all this stuff. And she just will unload her day on me, right? And, and I believe in her. It's like, no, 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 you don't suck. God built you and put you there for a specific reason. We don't know that reason. And guess what? It might not be about reporting services. Um, so that's when we believe in somebody, right? I have faith in another. Karen has faith in me. That is a union. It's actually more than just a, a mental ascent that, yeah, she's got a master's degree and she's smart and, um, and beautiful and all those things. Um, it's actually, I'm invested. I'm in relationship. That's what it means to be, have faith in Christ. It's not just a mental ascent. It's an actual joining with him, being in Christ. In the sense that we are actually, his death is our death. The, the penalty for sin, which I owe, and he paid, I participate in. And that grieves me. And I am raised with him in his life. And that that is everlasting life. So no matter what happens in this world, and I could have picked in Psalms that would have, uh, you know, the cry of our heart. Because we live in evil days. And we want to be delivered from this evil. Right? No matter what happens in this evil day. We have life in Christ. And the evidence of that is that the tomb 
rock was rolled back, and he, by the power of God, was raised. And that resurrection is our justification. Just as I feel that grief and death being buried with him in sin, I experience the joy of life in him, and that that life is eternal, and it's, it's lavished upon us, right? So this is, this actually, this verse set Martin Luther free. He was caught up in the Catholic Church and trying to figure out all of this regulation and trying to understand all of the injustice of the church in the face of what should have been justice. And what he did is he read, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This is wholly a work of God. And that we can be in union with him in that work. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Grace, faith, works. You're not saved by works. But guess what? If you have faith, you will walk in those good works which God prepared for you beforehand. So if you're joined with him in the good work that he does, you're in Christ, you're imitating Christ, as, as <coughs> Tim, so I'm so thankful that you, you brought 5-1 up, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Right? If we have faith, then what we're going to do is we're going to do the work of God. And Jesus actually said that. He said, you see what I do? You'll do this and greater. You'll be my hands and feet to a lost world. You'll do more than reach 12 people or 120 or 500. You'll reach billions. That's what's going on. We were created for good works. And through faith, by God's grace, that's what happens. Grace, faith, works. When I look at the salvation message, which is captured here, we were dead in our sins. And the result of that is being separated. We are children of wrath, right? Even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he, with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come we might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. One, two, three. Now we get to number four. That puts an obligation on us. We just received a revelation. Yeah. Uh, so you know I always got a lot of questions. Yep, and I, and I, and I, I went long today. Sorry. And, and, Go for it. and you've been on a great roll, so <laughs> don't need to interrupt. But on the works thing, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still, okay. So it's pretty clear in 2 <laughs> That you're not saved by work. That's correct. Okay. It isn't any. You don't. You don't have any merit in yourself. Exactly. Because if you did, you could do a work. Nine, yeah, not a result of works, just in motion. But then in ten, it goes right on and says that uh, really you're created for good works. Yep. So, so the good works are something that's a byproduct. Correct. It's but if what you don't have the good works, mm-hmm. are you sad? I mean, God. So the works don't save you. Correct. But and can't save you. It's a gift of God that saves you. But if, if grace, if you see a person who claims to be in Christ and there is no good fruit or works. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's right. Well, James questioned that, right? James thought Paul was saying, oh, you can sit back and your works don't matter, which is an absolutely true statement. Right? Paul was saying, guess what? 
Your works don't matter. It's grace. It's a gift of God. It has nothing to do with you. Whether you're saved or not is totally His working. It's not a result of anything that you do or anything that you have. Right? And that, that's a true statement. And James then said, well, hold it. You should have a, a result of actually being in communion with God. That unity, which is what I'm talking about of faith, not a mental ascent and then just living as I might choose, but rather a communion, joining in with Christ such that I am an imitator of him, should actually result in good work. And James said that. He said, you show me your faith um, by your words, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's my paraphrase. Right? So, that what's important is the, the, um, the adjective that's joined with that. Good works. Good works. And that what was the work of Jesus? It was the good work. It was many good works, but there was the good work which was to bring life out of death, to save, to actually accomplish the grace of God for humanity. Right? And so that is a good work. And what did he say? He said, my work here is done. I'm ready. I'm ready. So he, he gave it all for us. So what does that mean about us? means we should give it all for him. That that this should impact us in such a way that we live according to it. That we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Salvation creates obligation. The message of salvation creates obligation. So it actually goes a little bit maybe beyond for one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm still trying to live by four line, right? <laughs> trying to walk worthy. But um, if you read ten, two ten, mm-hmm. the very last part seems to indicate that. Okay, so for by his work which I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works which Christ or which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right. Isn't them referring back to the good works we should walk into? Which we which God created for us to walk in. Right. So he so did create for us he did create for us a walk. Right. So so we need to um, have faith in him and walk um, in that faith with the understanding that he has prepared the the path that our feet will follow. And we read about that, right? We're gonna to have to gonna have to wrap up here because we're we're over. But I have a count in my commentary on um, two ten. Um, it's a quote from Luther. It is and it says it is not against works that we contend, but against trust in works. Right. So where where is our faith? Is our faith in us, or is it in in, in God? And what I would say is that I know that this is relational faith that he's talking about here. Um, as opposed to mental assent, is that the whole next section is about how we are in relationship with God, whether Jew or Gentile. That that which separated us has been broken down. Let's go ahead and close here in prayer because I've gone way over this morning. Um, Lord, um, help us to wrestle with these ideas. Help us to understand what is us and what is you when we get tied up in our works or um, our pride, uh, Lord, gently um, nudge us to you that we can um, be the, the glory, your glory, um, by what you're doing in us and what you've uh, done for us um, and that you plan from before the creation of the world that which you wanted to uh, what your desire was in us, Lord. And um, we just ask that that would be realized, that as we struggle through the, uh, the temptations and the challenges in this world and, and our faith is challenged, um, Lord, that we would draw near you, 
that we would um, just rejoice in being in Christ, that we have that um, because of who you are and because you loved us so much, that we uh, actually have the eternal life that is Christ Jesus by your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you be with uh, Bob this morning and the choir and others that are going to be proclaiming your glorious works and your grace to the world. Lord, we just ask that that powerfully go out through your spirit and uh, challenge people's hearts, touch their hearts, reveal yourself to them. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask for your protection, your provision, and, and we're so thankful for your service to us, Lord, laying down your life. We ask all of this, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.